You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. Welcome to the Age of Napoleon. Episode 86, Six Hours. Thanks for joining me. As always, before we get started, I'd like to thank those of you who have signed up to support the show on Patreon. None of this would be possible without your help. If you haven't joined yet, I'll remind you that you can get this and all future episodes ad-free by pledging at least $2 a month or $10 for the whole year. Anyway, we left off last time in early 1806. The shockwaves of Napoleon's great victory at Austerlitz were rippling across the continent. The system of the five great powers, which had governed European affairs for decades, had never looked weaker. It was beginning to look like European politics was entering a new age, an age of French hegemony. But that's not the full picture. For the last few episodes, we focused almost entirely on continental diplomacy and the Grande Armée. We've been ignoring important developments on the high seas. And so, in this episode, we'll be turning west, towards the Atlantic Ocean. We'll also be going back in time, back to 1803 before Austerlitz, before General Mach's misfortune at Ulm, before the Third Coalition, and before Napoleon's coronation. This is roughly where we were at the beginning of episode 81. Napoleon was preparing to crown himself emperor. After Britain's surprise declaration of war in spring of 1803, Bonaparte moved nearly 200,000 of his best soldiers to the Channel Coast, to the famous Camp at Boulogne, where they would train and await the invasion of England. Overnight, the English Channel became the most important strategic location on Earth. As Napoleon himself put it, quote, Let us be masters of the Channel for six hours, and we are masters of the world. End quote. As long as the Royal Navy was able to prevent Napoleon from getting his six hours of mastery over the Channel, Britain would remain safe. But there would always be the possibility of a landing, as long as the French Navy existed in any significant strength. With invasion fever growing among the population, the British were desperate to neutralize the threat. Of course, Napoleon was well aware of this, and so he kept the cream of the French fleet in its home ports. French frigates and privateers raided British shipping, and generally caused a nuisance wherever they could. 
But Napoleon would not risk any of his ships of the line, the mighty battleships that dominated naval combat in this era. Unfortunately for the French, Britain's declaration of war in the spring of 1803 had come as a surprise, and the navy was not on a war footing. Napoleon's ships of the line were scattered all over France, 21 at Brest in the northwest, 12 in the south on the Mediterranean at Toulon, and others scattered around in smaller bases in France and allied states, or cruising at sea. If they were going to take on the Royal Navy, the French would need all their forces concentrated in one place, where they might deliver a decisive blow. But the British were able to deploy blockade squadrons around every major French port. There would be no way to concentrate France's ships of the line without either challenging these blockades or somehow giving them the slip. And so, the early phase of the war at sea was a monotonous stalemate with the British maintaining their blockades and their French counterparts sitting in port. It was a bit of a strange situation for the sailors and officers of these ships. For months, they saw the enemy every day, with no expectation of engaging them. Blockade duty was among the most hated assignments in any navy of this era. It combined the bad food, potential danger, and other hardships of life at sea with the dullness and purposelessness of life in port. The leaders of the Royal Navy had to find ways to keep their men sharp and motivated through this period of uncomfortable inactivity. Ironically, it was the same problem facing the French army encamped at Boulogne. Perhaps it's not surprising that they settled on the same solution Napoleon had discovered, an intense program of training and drill. The Royal Navy was already widely considered the best in the world when it came to the fighting abilities and seamanship of its sailors, and that edge only became sharper during their boring blockade duties in 1803. There was no corresponding program of training in the French Navy. While their comrades in the army drilled relentlessly at Boulogne, the sailors of the Empire were mostly still carrying out their peacetime routines. When the war at sea finally heated up, the British crews would be much better prepared. But this was nothing new. As we've discussed in past episodes, the Royal Navy already enjoyed a huge advantage over its opponents. This had been true for our entire story. Its ships were not significantly different from those sailed by the other powers. In fact, by this stage, a lot of British vessels had been built in France or Spain, and had been pressed into service in the Royal Navy after being captured in battle. Some scholars claim the French and Spanish were actually better shipbuilders than the British. But the Royal Navy was simply a far more effective organization than any rival navy. I think it's safe to say that after the Grande Armée, it was the most effective military institution of the age. The French Navy was not incompetent. In fact, it was one of the best in the world perhaps runners-up behind the British. But there was a tremendous gulf between the two services, and this gulf existed at every level. The French Navy wasn't as well-funded, the bureaucracy was less efficient, the sailors were brave, but generally inexperienced and often poorly trained. In this era, no country provided basic training for its sailors. Being recruited into the Navy as an ordinary seaman meant immediate placement on an active warship, with the expectation that you would either learn on the job 
or die trying. So, a fleet full of fresh recruits with no maritime experience was a fleet full of sailors who barely knew how to carry out their duties. As for the French officers, they didn't lack bravery either, but generally speaking, they were not as competent or seasoned as their British counterparts, and that was true from the admirals all the way down to the junior lieutenants. We've discussed in past episodes the way the Revolution devastated the French Navy. Just like in the army, there had been a mass exodus of conservative officers who did not wish to serve under a radical government. Unlike the army, these officers were practically irreplaceable. Great naval officers are made, not born. Even a person born with all the qualities of a good military leader would need years of experience at sea and education in the science of navigation before they could make a good naval officer. An experienced captain of this era could feel his ship moving beneath his feet, immediately sense the size of the swell, and know roughly how far away he was from a storm. That is not the type of thing you can teach someone overnight, no matter how great a leader they are or how committed to the cause they might be. The Royal Navy went into this period with a strong corps of senior officers who had these skills, and lots of young officers already in the pipeline, well on their way to gaining the experience they would need to one day become great captains and admirals. Despite the losses from ten years of near-constant warfare, the Royal Navy had been able to maintain that core of experienced, well-trained senior officers. After the Revolution, the French had struggled mightily to rebuild their own leadership corps, but had never quite been able to do it. They were trapped in a vicious cycle. Every time the French Navy lost a battle to the British, promising young officers and experienced sailors were killed or captured. Of course, the British lost ships and took casualties too, but the Royal Navy was better funded and drew from a bigger pool of recruits, so they generally suffered fewer losses than the French and could replace them more easily. There were brave men and hard workers in the French Navy, but they were struggling against the tide. Their rivals in the Royal Navy had every advantage, and they knew it. And so, by 1803, when Britain declared war on France, there was still a great gulf between the rival navies. Perhaps not quite as pronounced as it had been in the early 1790s, but the French were definitely the underdogs, and not only because they had fewer ships. This program of training, undertaken by the blockade squadrons, was just one more on a long list of advantages enjoyed by the British. So, hopefully that gives you a rough idea of the state of the two navies at the outbreak of war. But before we delve into the story of the Trafalgar campaign, I think we should check back in with our old friend, Horatio Nelson. We last discussed Nelson back in episode 58, when he defeated the Danes at the Battle of Copenhagen. You might remember this as the battle in which he supposedly put a spyglass up to his blind eye and declared that he could not see the signal to retreat. It had taken some slightly ungentlemanly tactics to get the Danes to accept Britain's terms, but it had worked. The battle was won, and the League of Armed Neutrality soon fell apart. Nelson returned to England to massive public acclaim. He was already widely regarded as a war hero, thanks to his exploits in the Mediterranean in the 1790s, but Copenhagen brought his reputation to new heights. 
He had always been ambitious and hungry for glory. Now he finally had what he had always craved. After Copenhagen, Nelson was almost universally regarded as Britain's greatest naval leader. Upon his return to England, he celebrated by going on a long tour of the countryside with his mistress, Lady Emma Hamilton, and her husband, Sir William Hamilton. Nelson's affair with Lady Hamilton was more or less public at this point. But that doesn't seem to have had much of an effect on Nelson's friendship with Sir William. They made a very strange trio to outside observers, but it seems everyone involved was more or less happy with this arrangement. By now, Sir William was getting on in years, and had formally retired from the diplomatic service. Lady Emma bought a house in a town called Merton, just outside London. The Hamiltons had lost almost everything when they had been forced to flee Naples, so most of the money for the house came from Horatio. It was impossible for Nelson to divorce his wife, Frances Nelson, but he did obtain a legal separation, which was the next best thing. She pleaded with him to return, but he refused to even open her letters. Finally free of his marriage, Horatio moved into the house at Merton with Lady Emma and Sir William. High society was scandalized. Nelson's own father called the arrangement evil and begged his son to walk away. But apparently, Nelson and the Hamiltons lived together more or less happily. Polite society did not approve of Nelson's arrangement with the Hamiltons, but some scholars have suggested that it might have actually enhanced his reputation with the common people. The idea of this national hero flouting convention in the name of love was inherently exciting and romantic. Unfortunately for Nelson, his father, Edmund Nelson, the morally upright Anglican clergyman, could never see his son's relationship as exciting or romantic. As he got older, he suffered from poor health, and his daughter-in-law, Frances Nelson, had always been there to help him through the bad times. He could not forgive his son for abandoning his wife. Edmund Nelson died in 1802 without reconciling with Horatio. Nelson had always been interested in politics, and now that he was a Viscount, he had become a member of the House of Lords, the upper house of the British Parliament, which was populated by the aristocracy. The issue of the day was the peace negotiations, currently underway with France. We know these would ultimately culminate in the Treaty of Amiens. Nelson surprised everyone by throwing his full support behind the government's efforts and coming out in favor of peace. But by his own admission, he was not very convincing. Whatever he said in the House of Lords, everyone knew Nelson was a man of war who hated the French and wanted to see hostilities continue until Napoleon was ground into dust. But that was Nelson. If the men he trusted in government told him the country needed peace, then he would argue for peace, even if no one believed him. As always, Nelson had trouble coping with life on shore. He was short of money, having to pay alimony to Fanny, and maintain the lifestyle of an aristocratic national hero for himself and Lady Hamilton. He had to sell off many of the gifts given to him by foreign monarchs, and got involved with disputes with other admirals and captains over prize money from ships captured during the last war. But despite his troubles, this was not an unhappy time for Nelson. He finally had the glory and public acclaim he'd always felt he deserved. 
Despite his money problems, he was now a man of some influence. He even had the ear of the Prime Minister. And, of course, he was deeply in love with a beautiful, exciting woman who loved him back. In the late winter of 1803, Sir William Hamilton fell ill, and on April 6, 1803, he passed away. His loving wife Emma and dear friend Horatio were right by his side. Sir William Hamilton was a successful diplomat, a member of the Royal Society, and one of the greatest classicists and archaeologists of his time. But, unfortunately, and probably unfairly, he is remembered mostly for his unconventional personal life. In May of 1803, the peace Nelson had argued for so unconvincingly finally ended. The great admiral's mind immediately returned to matters of tactics and strategy. He went for a walk with a friend and began to expound on his thinking. Quote, I shall go at them at once, if I can, about one-third of their line from the leading ship. What do you think of it? End quote. Nelson's friend did not respond. He probably knew better than to interrupt the admiral when he was speaking on such topics. Nelson continued, quote, I'll tell you what I think of it. I think it will surprise and confound the enemy. They won't know what I'm about. It will bring forward a pell-mell battle, and that is what I want. End quote. Apparently around this same time, he also drew a rough sketch of a naval battle fought along these lines. It was an unorthodox idea that went against all the conventional wisdom of naval warfare. But clearly Nelson was intrigued by it. Soon he would leave England again to take up command of a squadron in the Mediterranean. From what we now know, it's clear that this idea of cutting the enemy line stayed percolating in the back of his mind. Anyway, that brings us up to date with Nelson. Now let's dive into the story of his final campaign. As the Royal Navy maintained its watch over the French ports, they also kept one eye to the south, on Spain. We haven't had much cause to discuss Spain in the last few episodes. We've been focused on the war on the continent, and the Spanish army wasn't much of a force in European affairs. But Spain's navy was one of the best in the world, probably either second behind the British or third behind the French. France and Spain were allies, but they made very strange bedfellows. The King of Spain was a member of the Bourbon family, a cousin of the executed King Louis XVI of France. Spain's ruling class was generally conservative, piously Catholic, and vehemently opposed to the revolution and all it stood for. But in the coldly rational calculations of national interest, there is little room for ideology or family loyalty. Both France and Spain shared an intense rivalry with Great Britain and that was enough to bring them together. These unlikely allies were understandably wary of each other, but at the end of the day, they could recognize their true enemy. According to the terms of their alliance, Spain was duty-bound to support France in the event of war with Britain. However, the treaty allowed them to choose what form this support would take, they could either join the war directly or remain neutral but provide a generous financial subsidy to France. 
The Spanish had also been surprised by the British declaration of war in the spring of 1803. Their armies and fleets were not prepared, and so they went with option two, promising a whopping 72 million francs a year until they were ready to join the struggle. To put that number in perspective, when the Austrians capitulated after Austerlitz, they were required to pay an indemnity of only 40 million francs. This agreement between France and Spain was supposed to be secret, but obviously it was impossible to hide this huge transfer of cash and an entire country preparing for war. It didn't take long for the British to guess what was happening. They decided to strike first. In the late summer of 1804, the British became aware of a convoy that had just left Montevideo in Spanish America, carrying a huge cargo of gold and silver bound for the mother country. In Spain, that gold and silver would be minted into coins, and, thanks to their treaty with France, many of those coins would go straight to Napoleon to pay for guns, ships, soldiers, and sailors. Britain and Spain would soon be at war anyway, so the British leadership decided to start hostilities on their terms, with a bang. On October 5th, 1804, the convoy was intercepted by a squadron of fast British frigates off Cape Santa Maria in southern Portugal. Given that their country was at peace, the Spanish were not expecting a fight. And so, when the Royal Navy attacked, they immediately gained the upper hand. Every Spanish escort ship was captured or sunk, and the entire convoy fell into the hands of the British. Spain finally formally joined the war a month later. The surprise attack at Cape Santa Maria was a devastating blow to Spain, but her entrance to the war was not good news for the British. They now had to keep watch over two navies instead of one. They would have to maintain blockades around twice as many major enemy ports, Ferrol, Cadiz, and Cartagena in Spain, in addition to Toulon, Brest, and Boulogne in France. There were now enough ships of the line arrayed against the Royal Navy to seriously challenge British naval supremacy if they were able to get a favorable engagement. The French and the Spanish were still the underdogs at sea, but their forces were now close to parity with the British, close enough that all it would take was one victory or one mistake by a British admiral for the entire picture to change. Back in Britain, the government was furiously preparing for the possibility of a French invasion. All along the British and Irish coasts, they were building small stone fortifications, called Martello Towers, that were designed to raise the alarm and provide a first line of defense if an enemy invasion fleet appeared off the coast. Work had begun on the Royal Military Canal, a massive artificial waterway, that would provide a second line of defense around the likeliest invasion beaches in southeastern England. As some of our English listeners probably already know, the canal still exists today, although it looks quite a bit more modern because it was refurbished in 1940 during another invasion scare. The government was even preparing a temporary emergency capital in northern England, in case London fell to the French. In past episodes, we've discussed the part-time soldiers who were serving in various British militia units during this period. There were now perhaps as many as half a million of them. The British press and government made much of these preparations. 
The famous political cartoonist James Gilray published a cartoon bragging that Bonaparte's head would be on a pike within 48 hours if he landed in Britain. But the truth was, the country was in terrible danger. The construction of the Royal Military Canal was plagued with problems. By early 1805, only six miles, or nine and a half kilometers, had been completed. Not much of a barrier against a fast-moving French army. Many of the Martello Towers had been completed, but most were armed with just a single cannon. They would be useful as an early warning system, and a nuisance to any French landing, but not much more. And all those part-time soldiers? They were just that, part-timers, with little training and no experience. The government struggled to equip them to even a minimal standard. There was a minor scandal in Parliament when it came out that many of these units had been armed with pikes because no firearms were available. It had been well over a hundred years since massed pikemen had been seen on a European battlefield. The equivalent today would be going to war with biplanes or bolt-action rifles. However enthusiastic these volunteer pikemen might have been, it's hard to imagine them doing much more than slowing down the seasoned veterans of Napoleon's army. The closer you look at all these preparations, the clearer it becomes that the Royal Navy represented Britain's only realistic hope of resisting Napoleon. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. In late 1804, the Royal Navy tried to disrupt the French fleet at Boulogne using somewhat eccentric new weapons created by the American inventor Robert Fulton. We discussed these raids in detail back in episode 81, so to make a long story short, Fulton's devices did not work as planned, and the raids amounted to nothing. The harbors around Boulogne were far too heavily guarded for a conventional naval attack. That's why the Royal Navy had been so interested in Fulton's inventions. The failure of these raids meant that if the British wanted to end the threat of invasion, they would have to find some way to engage and capture or destroy a large number of French ships somewhere on the high seas. Napoleon was well aware of this. He knew the British were desperate for a major engagement at sea. The Royal Navy needed a decisive victory, and Bonaparte believed they would be willing to take risks to achieve one. And that was something he could work with. Napoleon and his admirals prepared an audacious plan to draw the Royal Navy away from the Channel and, hopefully, lure a large number of British ships into an unfavorable engagement, thus giving him his six hours of mastery over the Channel. According to the plan, the French fleet at Toulon on the Mediterranean would slip the British blockade and sail west. 
They would use their superior numbers to disperse the British blockades at Cadiz and Cartagena, thus allowing the Spanish ships of the line docked in those cities to join the French as they continued west across the Atlantic towards the Caribbean. There, they would raid merchant shipping, seize colonies, and generally harass the British, while they waited to be joined by Admiral Honoré Gontome, who would slip the British blockade at Brest with his 21 ships and dash across the Atlantic. Napoleon believed that with their lucrative West Indian colonies under threat and a chance to face the bulk of the French Navy in battle, the British would peel off some of the ships guarding the Channel to sail for the Caribbean to catch the French. But this Franco-Spanish fleet would not stay in the West Indies. Remember, by this point in our story, Napoleon's expedition to Haiti had been defeated, and Louisiana had been sold to the U.S. Bonaparte no longer had any interest in the New World. Instead, as soon as they got word that the Royal Navy was headed for the Caribbean, the Franco-Spanish fleet would sail east, back across the Atlantic. Upon arriving in Europe, they would take advantage of their temporary superiority in numbers to seize control of the Channel, thus enabling Napoleon to land the Army of England somewhere in Kent or Sussex. Like most of Napoleon's plans, the idea was audacious, but logical and strategically clever. But Napoleon was not a natural at naval strategy. He often failed to grasp the difficulties of operating at sea. Ships and fleets could not be moved around the map like chess pieces. It took tremendous skill and decades of training just to keep a ship of the line moving roughly in the right direction. And that's not taking into account the weather and currents or the enemy. Communication between ships further than a few miles apart was tremendously difficult, and often proved impossible. Sending a message to a fleet at sea meant guessing where the recipient would be and sending fast ships off in that direction, hoping they would evade the enemy, find the target, and deliver the message. Sometimes they did, and sometimes they didn't. The sender would have no way of knowing if his message was received until months later. So any plan that relied on distant fleets and squadrons all coordinating their actions was taking a big risk. Also, running the British blockade was easier said than done. The Royal Navy was stretched pretty thin at the moment, but for this plan to succeed, several different squadrons would all have to slip through the blockade. If even one of them failed, the whole plan would be compromised. Then there was this journey to and from the Caribbean. An Atlantic crossing would take a toll on these ships and on their crews. According to Napoleon's plan, there would be little time to rest and repair in the West Indies before they would have to go back the way they came, after which they would be expected to fight the Royal Navy and win. But with all those caveats, it was a clever plan. If it worked, the French and Spanish navies would be freed from the British blockades and have the opportunity to unite. Best case scenario, the Royal Navy would be drawn away from the Channel. Failing that, at least the combined Franco-Spanish fleet would be concentrated and finally in a position to challenge the British on something approaching equal terms. But it was a long shot. And worse, 
it seems Napoleon was not aware of just what a long shot it was. He never appreciated all the unique difficulties of naval warfare. His first impulse was always to micromanage. And for reasons we've already discussed, that was simply not practical when it came to ships at sea. Captains and admirals were uniquely aware of their ship's capabilities and of local conditions. They needed the freedom to make important decisions at their own discretion, and Napoleon was rarely willing to grant them that freedom. Fortunately for the French, Bonaparte had selected an excellent officer to lead this mission, Vice Admiral Louis-René Levasseur de la Touche-Treville. The 59-year-old La Touche-Treville was widely considered one of France's best naval leaders, and he was one of the only men in the world who had defeated Lord Horatio Nelson in battle. Nelson had regarded him as something of a nemesis ever since. It would have been perfect to see Nelson and La Touche-Treville face off in this all-important campaign, but fate had other plans. In the summer of 1804, Latouche Treville suffered a recurrence of malaria and died. With his death, command of the French fleet at Toulon, and the responsibility for executing Napoleon's audacious plan, fell to 41-year-old Vice Admiral Pierre-Charles Villeneuve. We've actually encountered Villeneuve in a previous episode. He had been a captain at the Battle of the Nile in 1798 where Nelson had annihilated almost the entire French Mediterranean fleet. Villeneuve had led a small squadron out of Aboukir Bay, the only French ships to escape capture or destruction on that fateful day. Many modern historians consider Villeneuve incompetent, although he does have his defenders. In my judgment, he was a pretty mediocre naval officer, who had one incredible talent, survival. Villeneuve had never won a battle in his career, although that was probably more a reflection of the superiority of the Royal Navy than of his abilities. However, through every mishap and disaster, Villeneuve always managed to bring his ship home. Even when capture or destruction seemed inevitable, he somehow emerged unscathed. That might make it sound like he was a coward, but that was not really the case. Villeneuve had his critics among his fellow admirals, but no one considered him a coward. He went into danger just like everyone else, he was simply better at getting himself back out. Perhaps it was luck, or perhaps he needed a whiff of catastrophe to bring out the best in him. I think it was this talent for survival, above all other things, that had brought Villeneuve to the top of the naval hierarchy. He had never been the bravest officer in the French Navy or the most inspiring leader, or the best navigator. But he had stayed alive and out of British custody, while more capable officers had fallen around him. He had avoided humiliation at the hands of the Royal Navy, at a time when that was almost a standard part of the job description of a French captain. And so, without any real achievements to his name, Admiral Villeneuve would try to fill the shoes of the legendary Admiral Latouche Treville, and try to execute this long-shot plan. But he was not the type of man you envision taking the reins when the stakes are this high. The French plan got off to a bad start. On March 26, 1805, Admiral Gontome attempted to slip out of the British blockade around Brest. 
he waited for a heavy fog to roll in and ordered his crews to operate in silence as they left port. Then a sudden gust of wind blew away the fog and the French were exposed. Gontome got his ships back to port before the British could respond, but he had missed his best chance to run the blockade. By the time he got another one, the whole campaign would be over. To the south, at Toulon, Admiral Villeneuve was successful. He managed to get 11 ships of the line into open sea before the British blockade squadron under Horatio Nelson had time to respond. Nelson tried to trick the French into sailing into a trap, but Villeneuve saw through the ruse and gave Nelson the slip. He arrived at Cartagena, and the much smaller British blockade squadron was forced to disperse, just as planned. However, when Villeneuve sent a message to the warships in the harbor telling them to make sail and join him, they responded that they had received no orders from Madrid and were not ready. Villeneuve continued to Cadiz, where it was the same story. He knew Nelson was right behind him. He could not afford to wait for his allies to get their act together. In the end, Villeneuve was able to pick up one more French ship of the line, which had been trapped in Spain since the outbreak of the war, and six Spanish ships of the line under Admiral Federico Gravina were able to get ready in time to follow. Villeneuve now had a considerable fleet under his command, but not quite as big as Napoleon's plan had envisioned. Now known as the Combined Fleet, Villeneuve's force set sail for the West Indies. After an arduous crossing, Villeneuve arrived in Martinique on May 14th, roughly six weeks after running the blockade at Toulon. The combined fleet did some fighting in the Caribbean, most notably taking a British fortification at a place called Diamond Rock near Martinique. But mostly, Villeneuve was waiting for the arrival of Admiral Gontome, with his 21 ships of the line from Brest. Those ships were never coming. Gontome hadn't even left port, but Villeneuve had no way of knowing this. Stage one of Napoleon's great plan was now complete. It hadn't all been executed properly, but what plan ever is? The question was, had it worked? The primary objective had been to draw Royal Navy forces away from the Channel. No one on the French side knew it yet, but by now it was clear that element of the plan had failed. Villeneuve was still being pursued by Horatio Nelson, as he had been since leaving Toulon, but the British had not allocated any additional resources to chasing down the combined fleet. The whole country was gripped by invasion fever. It would take a lot more than a few dozen ships milling around the Caribbean to distract the British from the great task of defending their home. What about the secondary objective of concentrating the Franco-Spanish naval forces so they could at least be more of a threat to the Royal Navy? Well, Villeneuve had started with 11 ships of the line, and now had about 20. That was progress. 20 ships of the line is nothing to sneeze at, but it was still only a fraction of France and Spain's combined naval strength. Villeneuve had spent two months dodging the British and sailing halfway around the world. So far, all he had to show for his efforts was the conquest of a single rock, although it was a very big and strategically important rock. On June 7th, the combined fleet was finally able to do some real damage. 
They intercepted a large convoy of British merchant ships, carrying valuable colonial goods back to Europe. Villeneuve captured the ships and their cargoes, and got a very valuable piece of intelligence from their crews. Horatio Nelson was in the West Indies. He and his squadron had just arrived at Barbados, and would soon begin looking for the French. Villeneuve's orders were not to engage in a major battle in the Caribbean. According to Napoleon's plan, the combined fleet was supposed to be on its way back to Europe before the Royal Navy arrived in the area. And so, the Franco-Spanish fleet immediately prepared for another voyage across the Atlantic. Nelson was close, but he somehow managed to look for Villeneuve in all the wrong places. By the time he realized the French had left the West Indies, the combined fleet had a head start of several weeks. Then, Nelson compounded his errors by assuming they were headed back the way they came, towards Cadiz or Cartagena in southern Spain. In fact, Villeneuve was headed to northern Spain, to Ferrol, where he would try to break the British blockade and free the Spanish ships in the harbor. Then he would proceed to Brest, France's biggest naval base, where he hoped to free Admiral Gontome and his 21 ships of the line. With Nelson headed in the wrong direction, Villeneuve stood a good chance of freeing the ships at Ferrol and Brest, more than doubling the size of his force and belatedly achieving the secondary objective of Napoleon's plan, concentrating most of France and Spain's naval power into a single fleet for a climactic confrontation with the Royal Navy. Unfortunately for Napoleon, the combined fleet was spotted as it made its crossing. Ironically, they were discovered by a ship from Nelson's squadron that was carrying his dispatches back to London, Dispatches in which Nelson told the Admiralty that he had failed to find the combined fleet. With the information from this ship, the Royal Navy was able to determine that Villeneuve was making for Ferrol. They rushed reinforcements to the blockade squadron outside the city, commanded by Admiral Sir Robert Calder, along with orders to intercept Villeneuve before he had a chance to rendezvous with any more French or Spanish ships. Calder's men spotted the combined fleet on July 22, 1805, just off of Cape Finisterre in northern Spain. The wind was poor, and it took the British a long time to close the distance. The Battle of Cape Finisterre didn't begin in earnest until the early evening. It was a strange engagement. With hardly any wind, the ships moved almost in slow motion. The whole area was cloaked in thick fog and, in the dying light of the evening, it was hard for anyone on either side to tell what was actually going on. Both admirals had to approach the battle cautiously. Sir Robert Calder knew that he was outnumbered, and he knew that one serious defeat could shift the naval balance of power. That would only be temporary until the British could bring in reinforcements from other regions. But remember, Napoleon believed he only needed to control the channel for six hours. Whatever happened, Calder could not risk losing his ships. Villeneuve held the advantage in numbers, 20 ships of the line versus just 15. But he didn't want a major engagement either. The journey from the Caribbean had been very hard on the combined fleet. Atlantic crossings were always arduous but this one had been particularly bad. 
Several ships had been damaged by the weather or in accidents, and almost all of them needed at least minor repairs. The crews were not in great shape either. The hard crossing had taken a toll on the men as well as their ships. Furthermore, it had now been months since they had been able to take on fresh provisions. The preserved food on Napoleonic-era warships was not quite as bad as people sometimes assume. It was possible to live on this food and remain healthy for quite some time. But several months on this monotonous, restricted diet did have an effect on the men's health, and especially on morale. And remember, the French were trying to concentrate all their forces in a bid to seize control of the English Channel. This was not the engagement they were looking for. And so, at the Battle of Cape Finisterre, the two fleets tried to engage cautiously, but in the thick fog, lit only by the setting sun, with very little wind to maneuver, it didn't take long for the British ships and the combined fleet to mingle together there was not much the two admirals could do to direct their fleets. For hours, French, Spanish, and British ships blundered into one another, almost at random. Finally, after five hours of confused, slow-motion battle, Admiral Calder sent out the order to break off contact. It took over an hour for every British ship to actually receive the message. Admiral Villeneuve did not press the engagement and by midnight, the firing had stopped. The British had gotten the better of the fighting, but only just. Two Spanish ships of the line had been captured, and two British ships of the line were so badly damaged that they were almost disabled. Neither side had a good wind to leave the region, and so they passed two uneasy days in the fog, knowing the enemy might emerge at any moment to continue the fight. Finally, on July 24th, the weather cooperated. The combined fleet sailed south and was able to put in at Acarunia. This was a small port and not at all suitable for so many ships, but at least the beleaguered French and Spanish could take on fresh provisions and supplies and make a few emergency repairs. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. When news of the Battle of Cape Finisterre reached Britain, Admiral Calder quickly found himself one of the most hated men in the country. The press, and much of the public, was convinced that he had thrown away a chance for a major victory. Calder was totally vindicated in official inquiry, and his fellow admirals defended him, including Horatio Nelson. But it was no use. He had done exactly what the Royal Navy had asked of him, and won a minor victory. But it ruined his career he would never again command a squadron at sea. Shortly after his arrival in Spain, Admiral Villeneuve received new orders, straight from the Emperor. He was to set sail as soon as possible for Brest, free Admiral Gontome and his ships from the British blockade, and then make for Boulogne, 
where they would attempt to buy the army their six hours of mastery over the channel. Napoleon was ready to attempt a landing in southern England. The invasion was on. All those months of furious sailing over thousands of miles had all been building to this. On August 14th, the combined fleet set sail from Alcarunia, bound for Brest, and destiny. At least, that's what was supposed to happen. After only one day under sail, a French ship spotted a group of British frigates. Villeneuve believed this was the advance guard of the entire Channel fleet. With only a few dozen ships, he could not afford to challenge the entire strength of the Channel fleet before linking up with Admiral Gantome. Villeneuve got cold feet. He gave the order to turn around and sail south. As it turned out, those British frigates were nothing but a routine patrol. In fact, all that was stopping the combined fleet from carrying out its orders and proceeding to Brest were the nerves of its admiral. The combined fleet couldn't return to Acarunia. It was too small for this huge force. Ferrol was still guarded by Calder's squadron, which would probably make them fight to enter the port. And so, the combined fleet would sail hundreds of miles south, to the bigger and more lightly guarded port of Cadiz in southern Spain. Napoleon was furious when he heard the news. Quote, That is certainly treason. It is unspeakable. Villeneuve is a wretch who must be sent packing in disgrace. He would sacrifice everything to save his own skin. End quote. The emperor didn't seriously believe Villeneuve was in the pay of the British. Napoleon meant that with his poor performance, he might as well have been. He continued, quote, What a navy! What an admiral! All those sacrifices for nothing! End quote. Shortly after Villeneuve's retreat, Napoleon began redirecting troops from the Channel Coast to the Rhine, in preparation for a confrontation with the Austrians and the Russians. No one knew it yet, but this was the closest Napoleon would ever come to getting his six hours and landing troops in the United Kingdom. Admiral Villeneuve's well-developed survival instincts had just cost Napoleon his only chance at conquering his greatest enemy. By the time it arrived in Cadiz, the combined fleet was in bad shape once again. After two hard Atlantic crossings, and a battle with Calder's squadron, almost every ship was in desperate need of repairs. The health of the sailors had deteriorated so drastically that over a thousand had to be admitted to the hospital as soon as they arrived in the city. Morale seems to have been quite poor as well. The Allies took out their frustrations on each other. Brawls between French and Spanish crews became so common that stories about them were even picked up by the British press. Cadiz was much better equipped to deal with so many ships than Acarunia, but it already had a large complement of Spanish warships in the harbor. Before long, the fleet was picking Cadiz clean. It wasn't just food for all these thousands of sailors. The ships needed all kinds of supplies to keep operating at peak efficiency. Lumber, pitch, tallow, medicine, linen, iron, tools, and a thousand other little things, all of which were soon in short supply. 
Villeneuve could not stay here forever. Meanwhile, the British sent every ship they could spare to reinforce the blockade squadron outside Cadiz. The bulk of enemy naval strength was now bottled up in only two locations, Brest and Cadiz, and the Royal Navy aimed to keep it that way. On September 28th, Vice Admiral Lord Horatio Nelson arrived off Cadiz, aboard his flagship, the HMS Victory, with orders to take over all command. He wrote in a letter to Lady Emma, quote, I believe my arrival was most welcome, not only to the commander of the fleet, but also to every individual in it. And, when I came to explain to them the Nelson touch, it was like an electric shock. Some shed tears. All approved. It was new, it was singular, it was simple, and, from admirals on down, it was repeated, it must succeed if they ever allow us to get at them. You are, my lord, surrounded by friends whom you inspire with confidence. Some may be Judases, but the majority are certainly much pleased with my commanding them. End quote. When he said the Nelson Touch, he was referring to that plan he had been thinking over since arriving in England, the idea of breaking with naval orthodoxy by cutting the enemy line. This letter was Nelson at his most egotistical, but he was right. By now, he was such a legendary figure that his very presence raised morale. A young British midshipman wrote, quote, Lord Nelson took command of our fleet. And though we had, before that, no doubt of success in the event of an action, yet the presence of such a man could not but inspire every individual in the fleet with additional confidence. Everyone felt himself more than a match for the enemy. End quote. In Cadiz, the French and Spanish watched as the British blockade squadron grew larger and larger. With each new sail on the horizon, their chances of escape shrank. Admiral Villeneuve released a proclamation of trying to strike a defiant tone. Quote, Nothing should astonish us in the appearance of the English squadron. Their 74-gun ships do not have 500 men aboard. They are worn out after cruising for two years. They are not braver than us and have infinitely less grounds for enthusiasm and love of country. They are skillful at maneuvering, but in a month, we shall be as skilled. Finally, everything is coming together to give us confidence of the most glorious success and of a new era for the mariners of the empire. End quote. Stirring words, but anyone with eyes could see that their situation was not good. The ships of the combined fleet were still in bad shape, and they lacked all the proper resources for refitting and repairs. Its men were tired, sick, and demoralized. The officers did not trust each other. Supplies were becoming a problem. The admiral did not seem up to the task. The emperor was furious at them. And, worst of all, the clock was ticking. Before long, they would have to face Lord Nelson with his well-maintained ships and experienced officers and crews. On October 16, 1805, Admiral Villeneuve summoned the leadership of the combined fleet for a council of war. He had new orders from Napoleon. The War of the Third Coalition had broken out on the continent, and the Emperor wanted his fleets to play their part in the action. He ordered Villeneuve to break out of Cadiz, then set sail for Italy to support the French army on the peninsula. 
Despite the tough words in his declaration to the fleet, Admiral Villeneuve was not enthusiastic about these orders. And when he presented them to his officers, they didn't like them either. Any attempt to break out of Cadiz was likely to result in a battle, and with the combined fleet in its current state, it would likely lose. The Spanish admirals and captains were particularly opposed to this plan. They had no interest in sacrificing their men and ships just to ease Napoleon's conquest of southern Italy. Villeneuve didn't press them. He had his own misgivings about this plan, and his officers' objections gave him an excuse to listen to those misgivings. He decided to tell Napoleon that these orders were impossible, that the fleet would have to wait for a good opportunity to break out. Although, how long they could afford to wait before the supply situation actually forced them to leave Cadiz was an open question. However, two days later, on October 18th, Villeneuve's attitude had changed completely. Suddenly, he was eager to follow Napoleon's instructions, leaning on his captains to support the plan, and ordering the fleet to make final preparations to make sail. He provided no explanation for this sudden change of heart, but he was the commander of the fleet. His subordinates could do little more than shrug their shoulders and obey. We now know that Admiral Villeneuve's mind had been changed by a little personal intelligence. He had received a letter from the Minister of the Navy, Denis de Cray, warning him that Vice Admiral Francois Etienne de Rosalie Meroux had just arrived in Madrid with orders to proceed to Cadiz and relieve Villeneuve of command. Napoleon had finally had enough. Villeneuve was finished. That is, unless he did something drastic. In his letter, Minister de Cray confided to Villeneuve, quote, Break out, beat the enemy, and all will be right. End quote. I have not been able to discover if de Cray's warning to Villeneuve was delivered in his official capacity as naval minister or as a friend. The two men had served together in the Mediterranean. It's possible de Cray felt his old shipmate deserved one last chance to redeem himself. If Villeneuve could sail out and defeat Nelson before Admiral Rosalie Meroux arrived in Cadiz, he could still salvage his career and save himself from the embarrassment of a dismissal. And so, the combined fleet prepared to sail out and meet Lord Nelson and the British. They had been putting off this confrontation for months, desperate to preserve their forces until the perfect moment arrived. This was not that perfect moment. The grand confrontation with the Royal Navy was supposed to be about buying Napoleon his six hours, finally bringing France's unreachable enemy within the Emperor's grasp. But, with the French armies storming into Germany, there was no longer any force available to land in Britain. Instead, the sailors of the combined fleet were going into battle to save the career of a mediocre admiral. Was this really what it had all been for? All those months of hardship, all those thousands of miles of hard sailing. It certainly wasn't the most dignified cause for all these thousands of men to be risking their lives. But who could say? Villeneuve's greatest skill had always been self-preservation. Perhaps, with his career on the line, he would be inspired to genius. 
On October 18th, the frigate HMS Sirius was on patrol outside Cadiz. It raised a signal to the rest of the British fleet, enemy ships coming out of port. The message was relayed to Nelson on the victory, and he raised his own signal, General Chase, southeast. Spirits were high in the British fleet as they made sail. A midshipman would later remember, quote, All hearts towards evening beat with joyful anxiety for the next day, which we hoped would crown our anxious blockade labors with a successful battle. End quote. That young man would be disappointed. The wind was poor that day, the French and Spanish ships were slow leaving port, and the British were sluggish as they formed up to follow. It would be three days before the final confrontation took place. But that story will have to wait. Next time, we'll see Lord Nelson and Admiral Villeneuve and their men meet destiny just off Cape Trafalgar. Until then, thanks for listening. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Have you ever gazed in wonder at the Great Pyramid? Have you marveled at the golden face of Tutankhamun? Or admired the delicate features of Queen Nefertiti? If you have, you'll probably like the History of Egypt podcast. Every week, we explore tales of this ancient culture. The History of Egypt is available wherever you get your podcasting fix. Come, let me introduce you to the world of ancient Egypt. 